Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to see you and get to hear your voice again. Likewise. So I know you've been here before as a guest, but a lot has changed since then. It's been a minute. So would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? I don't mind at all. And I'm laughing to myself because uh, it feels like I'm a different person since the last time (laughs) I got to be on the podcast, maybe five years ago, four years ago, something like that. It was a a minute ago. (laughs) Yeah, it it feels like an eternity for the life lived between. So for all the listeners, uh, my name is Dan Stover. I'm an executive coach in the field of consulting psychology, work with all kinds of different organizations and individuals that are looking to grow in their self-awareness and emotional intelligence, their consciousness in relationship to how effectively they could lead. Personally, like my favorite things to do are nature photography and hiking and learning mountaineering and getting more and more into rock climbing. So being out in big nature is how I spend the rest of my time when I'm not wearing my professional hat. Yeah, I love your Instagram. It's just always stunning photos of mountains and nature. And it's it's really fun to see what you're up to always. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoy getting to share that. So there are so many things that we could talk about, but there's one thing in particular I've been dying to to talk to you about on here in this format, and that is near-death experiences, and specifically your near-death experience. So I don't know where it would feel good for you to start with that, but wherever you feel most comfortable beginning, I, I would just love to hear you share about what you went through and what's been happening for you on the other side of that. Yeah, I'm happy to share. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Like I I think about certain words being used more often now, like dying to talk about this and it's a near death experience. And there's a, right. Yeah. And it was my hit by the bus moment and it was more literal than figurative, albeit both. Why don't I tell the most abbreviated version of the story? Because if I go into detail, I mean, it would be probably 30, 40 straight minutes of talking. And then from there, we just kind of pull on some threads, if that sounds good. Perfect. Okay. So the abbreviated story to set up what my near-death experience was... In some fashion, even though it would be cheesy and not totally applicable, I I thought of this trip to Bali, Indonesia in the summer of 2018 as my eat, pray, love adventure. So literally had just ended uh, a relationship with a woman I was dating the night before I graduated grad school and then, you know, was processing all of this change There was lots of change and ultimately what emerged to be a conflict in the business that I was in. And so it was just time to get away and kind of be free from all of it off the grid in a wonderful spiritual little paradise, which I really truly feel Bali is. Well, in about halfway through my trip, I was staying in an eastern part of the island, which is much more rugged, much more remote, much less touched by modernity. 
and it was to see two temples in particular. One was called is called Turkdaganja, and the other is called Burlamboyang Temple. So I was staying in this like little rice paddy hut uh, village that somebody had put together, where it was kind of like the island South Pacific version of glamping in a way. <laughs> And the way to get around was mostly by a motorcycle because of the roads being so rugged. And, you know, I was on mud and dirt roads quite a few times that were pretty inaccessible by any kind of vehicle. And halfway through this trip, and I'm, I'm navigating this part of my vacation and adventure solo by orienteering and like paper mapping it. So I didn't have any cell phone service or GPS or anything like that. I now own a GPS <laughs> like <laughs> that I take with me, Great. especially when I'm alone. And this informed, this story informed some of that. And I had just finished a, a really beautiful day at Pearl Lumpuyang Temple, which is built up the side of a mountain called Mount Lumpuyang. One of the noteworthy pieces at the beginning of this story is that I got the pictures, like there was the shot. It's like one of the best photos I've ever taken. And I got the shot and I just kind of hung around for a couple hours afterward and enjoyed just getting to explore the temple. And I kept feeling like I kept having this inner voice or experience, like to put words to it, it would be like, you got to go. It's time to go. I felt called to leave and it was pretty deep. So I, I couldn't ignore it. And after a few minutes of that, a, a large group of devotees, local devotees to the temple showed up for a ceremony. And I was like, okay, well maybe that's it. That's, that's why it's time to go. I start heading down the temple stairs to the base, which is like literally heading down the mountain find my motorcycle. And just as I start to lurch forward, I realized that I'm pretty low on water and I had a camelback in my little day pack, a water bladder. And so I decided to stop and there was a little woman on the side of the road that was selling, you know, huge bottles of water and filled up and everything, which, you know, seemed inconsequential at the time, but actually that, that small decision right there could have been a life-saving decision. Mm -hmm. So I do finally take off and I'm going down the mountain and basically I have to go down Mount Lumpuyang, go across this really interesting valley, beautiful rice paddies and jungle in between Mount Lumpuyang and Mount Agung, which is the massive active volcano in mm -hmm. Bali. And then I would basically go up some of the foothills of Mount Agung, wrap around maybe like a quarter or less of that ridge line and then drop down into where I was staying. Just out of curiosity, in terms of miles, how far would you say that would be? Because of what happened, I have no idea. Got it. Okay. <laughs> the So there's a lot of It doesn't of sound close. Yeah, it's not close. Yeah. I mean, driving time, minimum two hours. Got it. Okay, yeah, far. Yeah. So... I'm making my way up these foothills and I had this moment and this is the next really noteworthy moment of the whole day in chronological order. I felt one of the most beautiful experiences of liberation mm -hmm. I'd ever felt. The freedom that no one really knew where I was exactly. 
I was orienteering and navigating everything by eye and doing a pretty damn good job of it. I had just finished this monumental milestone for myself academically with grad school and then made one of those hard decisions of like ending things with a really nice person all at once. And then I'm in this beautiful foreign place. And moments after I had that thought, I'm approaching a hairpin turn on a really rugged section of road and a 10 passenger van that's going extremely fast for the turn and struggling with its own control of the vehicle comes around the bend. So I probably have maybe a couple of seconds to react. So I made the right move. I, I hugged one side of the road as best as I could without actually going off of it. And, you know, for the best, like limited assessment you can make in that moment, it looked like I was probably going to sideswipe the van. So like, it's amazing how fast the brain processes in a, in a fight response, like, which mm -hmm. I felt like it was more fight than flight or freeze. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to hit the side of the van. I'll probably take the side view mirror off and then I need to fall well, like as, mm -hmm. I need to fall as best as I can. Well, that's not what happened. There was loose rock everywhere and the tires spun on the side of the road. I lost control and shot 90 degrees into the road mm -hmm. directly across the path of the oncoming uh, minibus. And that, if you can imagine uh, a bike going perpendicular within the road, I, the momentum, the forward momentum flipped me off of it. So the bike kind of spun out on its own. And then it was just me, you know, about to hit the ground and the van about to hit me. Mm. And I collided my, my whole backside hit the front grill and fender of this minibus. And I kind of landed Kind of on my left side, kind of like Superman, like kind of sprawled out in the accident. And my backpack had kind of exploded, but I'd had that water yeah. that I had just filled literally covering my spine where I hit. Well, the backpack got ripped open or kind of blew open in the impact. And when I landed, the, the minibus hadn't come to a complete stop yet. It was still slamming on its brakes and, and slowing down. So I got caught under the minibus and when it stopped, the tires were like against my left side, mm -hmm. like against my left shoulder and hip. And so the backpack actually got caught in the undercarriage, which further saved my life. But so that was kind of what happened. But, you know, and we can go into this more later if you'd like. I had a complete out-of-body, otherworldly experience where time and space was no longer my normal physics understanding of time and space in that fraction of a second before impact in this physical plane understanding of time. So I thought I was dead, and I thought I was like still having some form of consciousness exiting my dead body when I was under the van and I was hearing screams and I could hear the door, the van doors and the passenger doors of people getting out. All of a sudden I coughed and immediately kind of re-entered my mm -hmm. physical sensibilities 
And I, when I started coughing and I, I, I was trying to move my body and I couldn't yet. So the first thought I was like, oh my God, I'm paralyzed. And then I thought, okay, maybe this is just shock. And they, the passengers inside also started screaming because they thought they were oh trying to deal with the trauma of thinking there was a dead person now having an alive person <laughs> underneath the vehicle and started helping me out. So from here, I mean, this is where the kind of miraculous stuff begins. One of the passengers in the van was a German ER trauma nurse <laughs> and spoke quite a bit of English. Wow. And so she immediately starts triaging me as she's triaging me, like I'm, I'm actually for being in shock and bloodied up with pretty severe road rashes. I was like, I, I was alive. <laughs> I was doing pretty well, all things considered, <laughs> although wow. in quite bad shape. And as she and I are like having an incoherent discussion, this little man um, that was dressed in all white, which is usually symbolic of some kind of significant role at a temple, rides up on a moped. The guy in the moped and the driver of the van, who was hysterical, like felt mm -hmm. so bad for what was happening, like inconsolable. They start speaking back and forth in Bahasin and the ER nurse, it was kind of weird This is how this simultaneously happened. The ER nurse passenger said, you seem to be okay, but this is a problem and pointed mm. to the skin that was ripped off of my left arm nice. that was just black. I mean, covered in mm. stuff. So she was alerting me to the, the seriousness of infection in such a tropical climate and having so much skin exposed. And what, like almost within a, a few seconds of that, it seemed the driver of the van in very broken English, best as he could possibly get out, essentially said that the guy in white knows of a doctor nearby and like, you must go. Mm -hmm. And so in, there was like a fraction of a second of relief that I might like help is on the way, right? More so than I was already getting. The guy in white walks over to his moped and pats the the back seat, the passenger seat oh, of the bike. And I go, I go into like full freak out mode. Like there's absolutely no way. And and like I'm trying to bargain across language barrier with the guy with the that was driving the minibus to please take me, like mm. please help, like please drive me there. Because it was absolutely incomprehensible to me to get on someone else's moped on these roads that I already clearly couldn't navigate unharmed. But ultimately, that was the only option. They kind of put up their hands really close together and they were trying to explain to me that the road to the village where the doctor was was too narrow for the minibus to get through, mm -hmm. which ended up being it was believable and true based on how some of these, you know, some of these calling them roads is a little generous for this part of the island. So the guy and I take off. Everybody helps me over to get on the back of this moped. And the guy takes me to uh, this doctor. I was maybe a 20, 30 minute adventure away. Long story short, very painful out of body of experience of getting scrubbed. Yeah. 
in a really, in a kind of rough environment with saline and peroxide and getting the wounds cleaned out. But the guy waited for me, took me back. And the real transformative experience of all of this that we can get into together as much as time allows is the guy that helped me, which I never got his name, had to go. He had somewhere to be. So he brings me back to where the scene of the crash was, checks out the motorcycle I was on to see if like it was still drivable, which it was. It was banged up pretty bad, but still drivable. And then had to leave. And he gave me his best apology that he could. And we had a sweet moment together. But then I had quite an adventure ahead of me alone trying to get myself to safety and help back on the motorcycle, which ultimately turned out fine in the end. But where I'll pause is that from the moment of the accident and getting to a hospital took me around 12 hours. Mm-hmm. I think it was about 12 or 13 hours from impact to, to getting proper medical care. A significant number of hours of that, I was by myself wow. trying to get to safety. And both the impact, the out-of-body experience, and then I think most significantly, the time alone in the most intense survival state I've ever been in changed my life forever. Like the perspective I gained from that, I am a much different and better human being for it. Wow. There's one part of this story that I just think is incredible that I would love for you to share. Because there was another near miss in this whole scenario. There was another potentially life-ending piece of it that you escaped almost. I can't remember if it was just purely by gut instinct, but this was in the hospital, I believe. There was. So a very near miss happened between the the doctor in the really remote area, like you could kind of say, quote, in the jungle. After he had scrubbed out all of the wounds, which I kind of blacked out for. That's like mm-hmm. so much of this is vivid, but that was a very blackout experience. He hand, he He put both of his hands in front of me. And he kind of bounced one and said pain. And he bounced the other one and said infection. Mm -hmm. And they were pills. They were blister packs of pills that you get from like kind of one off, you know, pre-prescription. And so I pointed the one that he said infection. And I said, is it penicillin? And he said, no, infection. And I'm like, but is it penicillin? And he said, no, infection. And I realized we are at a language barrier standoff because I have no other way to describe nor ask about penicillin, which I'm deathly allergic to. Mm. So he's clearly wanting to do the right thing and give me an antibiotic. I am now having to make an impaired assessment in the moment of like, what's my risk factor here? Like I'm very far from help. I'm very far from Denpasar, the city where the hospitals are, you know, do I take the pills and risk it? You know, if it's penicillin, what's going to happen? And I don't know if I was listening to my gut instincts, it was survival, it was luck. Do you, anybody Uh. could tell me what it was, but I decided not to take the pills. 
So I put those in my pocket and took the pain pills and, and he was very upset. The doctor, you know, out of care and a sense of obligation, like was very, very upset. I wouldn't take the other pills and he didn't understand why. So it was like kind of a scene between the two of us and this weird departure when we, when we left each other's presence. But ultimately when I got to the hospital, and got really good medical care, totally impressed with the medical care I received. They kind of gave me the update of everything that was, that they had assessed. And at the end said, oh, and by the way, that was penicillin. Oh shit. Yeah. And so wow. that was a, that was another big dot, uh, bullet dodged that Seriously. day. Seriously. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the story. I mean, I've heard you share it a few times and it's gripping every time. And I remember speaking to you very shortly after this happened and it was, I mean, at least from an observer standpoint, it felt like a line of demarcation for you. It seemed like, and and obviously I think we'll get to this. We'll talk about, you know, what all changed after, but I feel like Dan before and Dan after are different people. It's, it's nice to hear you affirm that. You know, we have a a very long, wonderful friendship with one another, as many things as we've done, you know, intellectually and in business adjacent to one another. The friendship is really the most important. So the fact that you see that line of demarcation is, is affirming. And there's quite a few ways to talk about it. And I would say it was it was first most obvious to me that a line of demarcation had occurred because I had about three months of bliss after the accident. You know, whatever's written about just being grateful to exist and be alive and experience it all, like I got a taste of that for a little while. It was so, I was so close to death. And this didn't start until I actually got back home to Los Angeles and stood in my apartment for the first time. Like Mm. I kind of dropped my bags at the door and walked over the window and had kind of crocodile tears coming down my face because it was like the first recognition of safety I had had in days, like over a week. And so finally feeling that just all encompassing safety kind of kickstarted this line of demarcation. And so three months after that, I would literally wake up in the morning, (laughs) eyes would first open and in my head or out loud, I would go, Wow, I'm still here. Like, this is crazy. Like, how could I be upset at anything? Wow. I remember that. It was so cool. It was really fun. And all my friends are like, are you going to be like a guru now? I'm like, no, because I don't think this is going to last. And the reason I didn't think it was going to last is because it was such an altered state that, like, as I went back to the appropriate level of monotony in life. I kind of figured life would condition me back into just feeling like a normal person again. And to a lot of degree, that's true, but there's some things you can't forget. There's some things you can't unsee, um, unexperience. So what happened after that first three months is that the, for all the meditation and retreats and yoga and experimentation I've done to try and enhance my consciousness, 
there's nothing that did the job more than almost dying hmm. because what I seemed to gain was a great deal of perspective on like what matters and what doesn't in life dealing with a lot of existentialism of like, is my existence in the universe of any significance or not? And wrestling with those things ultimately led me to being very comfortable with just what is like, if this is a game, then, then I'm here to play it. If this is an illusion then I'm here to experience it. So whatever this whole thing is for this ride that we're on, on the physical plane and consciousness and what have you, the phrase be here now <laughs> finally stopped being an intellectual experience and started being an actual something I could allow and embody where I'm just here for it now. Yeah. And that brought uh, a great deal of calm to me that I wouldn't have expected from such a, a seriously traumatic day in my life. Something I'm I'm interested in, and you may or may not have an answer for this. I think a lot of people experience a truly terrifying event like that and don't get the bliss state at all. Like they're just kind of wrecked from it for a while. Maybe, you know, there's processing and things that happen. They move through it, hopefully. Do you have a sense of what allowed for you to go into the gratitude and the bliss and the wonder of being alive rather than being kind of fucked up for lack of better terms from what happened? It's a good question with a complicated answer. Okay. Most of what I'm going to say to you is guessing and storytelling. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> because fine. Who, who knows for right. real? Yeah. It's hard to we'll know. We'll see. Right. Yeah. But no, it's a great question because I have had, I have a pre pretty significant trauma history, right? right? Like my, my ACEs score would be uncomfortably high for a lot of people. And so there's a part of me that wonders if previously lived experiences in this lifetime of pretty significant trauma, actually, and the therapy for years that I had gotten to navigate that trauma was in any way, shape or form a, a little bit of a setup for the big one, you know, the, the near death one, like, was I able to, I, I ask myself sometimes like, you know, was I able to process this differently because of all of the years of good therapy and introspection and just trying, just, just putting in some work to try and heal in, in, a, in so many different ways. And then the word surrender comes to mind too. And I don't know how much this factors in or not, but I was stuck in bed for days following the accident, recovering. And basically it was just like, I was either in bed, upright eating, or taking a short walk to a clinic to get like skin grafting repair mm -hmm. stuff done while in Bali. And there was this point where after like, thinking or asking out loud, staring at the ceiling for the millionth time, like, why was I spared? Why was it? Why am I here? Like, what, what the hell is this all for? Like, why did I survive? I finally said out loud, looking upward at the ceiling slash sky slash, you know, liminal space between me and whatever the rest of the atmosphere is. And said, whatever you are, 
I surrender. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's either God consciousness, the universe, it, it, alien avatars that we're <laughs> assuming. Like, I don't you know. Never know. Whatever it is, <laughs> call it God, call it universe, call it cosmos. Like, I don't care. Labels are irrelevant to me at this point with all this stuff. But whatever you are, I surrender. Like, I have to just hand over some degree of trust to the fact that I'm not in control. And and despite being completely out of control of most of what happens to me in such a large way, henceforth, like the whole accident or moment, you know, stop calling it an accident, but try to call it a moment. I'm still here. I'm still here. And, and there's something precious to me about still being here, independent of what's happened to me that I would have never signed up for. And the preciousness of that is what was not lost on me coming out of that, that may have also helped that three months of, of like real clarity and bliss state about the gratitude to just be alive, despite an incredibly tough time amongst many parts of my life. When did that start to shift for you? Because my sense of it, and I don't want to speak for you, so correct me if this is wrong, but my my sense is that there was this like tremendous expansion that happened afterwards. And then there was some contraction at a certain point, or maybe it's not entirely the right term, but just kind of falling back into the mundane. But then there's been growth that's come again, you know, another expansion that's happened as you've processed this more in depth. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Constant expansion and contraction. I think something so important to know about this whole journey is that no matter how much good I can say has come out of it ultimately, and that I can maintain that perspective, there's been a lot of hard moments along the way and hard periods of time around this along the way. And so There came a point where, you know, getting into the quote monotony, which is, I don't mean that as a negative connotation, but just being completely immersed in the day-to-day reality of, you know, a country that is uh, capitalistic right? (laughs) and being in business and, you know, operating within that world. I started my own company. And I don't think I would have started my own company had it not been for the perspective from the accident, but that was a tremendous amount of work. And I was able to just throw myself into that, albeit in a meaningful way. But for anyone who started a business, you know, it just kind of gets intellectually consuming. And I think there was a neglect over time for some months of the beautiful emotional stuff I was going through Mm -hmm. in trade for the just endless amount of intellectual expensive energy I was putting into starting a successful consulting firm. So that was a bit of the setup and I I wouldn't change it. You know, I just, I was living life as I needed to do so. And you make compromises, you make trade-offs. What's really interesting though, is that After a year of running the company and feeling like I was getting into a bit of a groove and maybe had some more space to attend to these more peculiar consciousness and emotional experiences I was having, a global pandemic hit. 
And I think most of us, if not all of us, remember those first couple weeks, maybe even that first month, where this was the most existentially terrifying thing many of us have experienced where everybody else was experiencing it too. Right. Like there was no one absolved from that. Like, what is this? Like, and what's the death rate? Like when we didn't know much about the virus and all of a sudden my mortality came into sharp focus Mm -hmm. and I started having a trauma response related to the near-death experience just a couple years before, not even a couple years before. And so there was this, you know, there's lots of peaks and valleys here, and it seems like I kind of had a peak right after the incident and then kind of subtly making my way into a valley. And then the lowest point of the valley came shortly after the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And I started being unable, I, I, I lost my ability to maintain perspective really on life. And I was calling it an existential funk, not realizing how much of an opportunity was in that for me to grow and Mm -hmm. fortunately just sought out. It's really interesting. Like, you know, I've had a good amount of therapy in life, but I think there's nothing more interesting than saying like, I'd really like to practitioner who understands business, gets attachment issues, understands near death, other side, spiritual experiences, and like (laughs) works on their own consciousness. Like I've never had such a big filter, small margin of people that like probably could help me with this, but met a lot of great practitioners along the way and ultimately was able to get out of that valley and just return to kind of a new baseline that I experienced myself in. What would you say helped you get there aside from finding the right practitioner? Were there some key moments within that? Yeah, I think in, in something happening to me, like what did happen to me, it's very easy to tell yourself no one else understands. Mm -hmm. No one else is going to get it. And some of my most honest, dearest friends were compassionately acknowledging that themselves of just like, wow, like what a thing you went through. Like, I can't, I can't imagine it. I don't understand it, but I appreciate, you know, I kept hearing stuff like that over and over again. And I started realizing I was taking on a little bit of that narrative that, that over time I was telling myself that no one gets it. And I started feeling more isolated and alone. And then a pandemic happens and you're isolated and alone. And that was, that could have been compromising had I stayed there. So directly answering your question, I think getting out of that and realizing this is just part of a journey. Lots of other people have near-death experiences in all kinds of facets, and there's people I can talk to about this. I just have to keep trying. And, and that, that surrendering again, that like this does not need to be an isolating experience, like just give myself over to the journey helped me a lot in in respect to getting over it's seeing the opportunity in it not getting over something per se but like seeing the opportunity that was in front of me and recognizing that almost dying was probably 
or potentially the most valuable understanding I could have about life mm. and living. And when that started to connect, I started to make that much more progress. And then there was this funny moment, you know, it's only something really small and obvious, but I was having a conversation with my coach slash therapist slash life <laughs> advisor person, you know, and he, he serves me in a lot of capacities. We had this exchange that ended in, so what if you almost died? You fucking didn't. <laughs> and that must mean something in and of itself with no greater requirement beyond that. No greater perspective required. Mm -hmm. You didn't. And, and that's what really brought me to the idea of, wow, be here now is much more than just a phrase in mindfulness mm -hmm. and spirituality. It's actually a, a constant if you exist. Yeah. Since we don't want people throwing themselves in front of buses, obviously, do you think there are ways to access some of this without going through what you went through? I would love to think most people are not as hard headed as I am to, <laughs> for the universe to literally hit you by a bus to wake up. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people write about this stuff all the time, right? Yeah. And it comes in the quirkiest of ways. My response to that is that it may have already happened to some people and they didn't realize it. You know, if you were to put this in a nutshell, it was trauma, really intense trauma with conscious effort on both sides of the trauma to heal that brought me anything out of any of this. And I'm hard pressed to find people, adult people that haven't lived through trauma. Right. And and so I would have to believe there's nothing to actively be done or pursue to have an expansion in consciousness and heart opening compassion um, for yourself and humanity and the condition of the world around us. You might have already lived through it and you might have already had the door blown open, but the door being blown open is so emotionally and psychologically difficult to allow, accept, digest, let alone integrate, that we miss it sometimes. And so I wonder, you know, with all the traumas I've been through physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually, you know, was any of that door, were any of those doorways too? But this was the one that I finally went all the way into with all of my heart and soul really wanting to understand the opportunity from it since it was the closest I'd ever been to dying. Yeah. I can't help but think, I mean, your guess, which seems like a really solid guess to me that part of the reason you were able to turn this into a net positive, albeit difficult, was helped by the foundation that you had laid processing the complex trauma that you had experienced before. Because as we know, people with a history of complex trauma are more likely to get PTSD than, than people that don't. You had already spent so many years 
looking at that, working on that, embracing yourself in different ways that it's, it's impossible actually for me to imagine that that didn't help. Yeah. Same here. And, and you know, when, when you start a, a journey of healing to resolve complex traumas or complex PTSD, we're all starting at different points in time. You know, some of us start that journey after our greatest traumas have happened to us. Some of us start that journey before our greatest traumas have yet happened to us. What's guaranteed is that, you know, traumas will occur. Mm -hmm. And so I guess all I maybe mean to say by that is it's all happening all of the time and we're all starting our journey whenever we make that conscious decision to start it, meaning the journey to heal. And the thing I can't get out of my mind as we, you know, bounce this off one another in real time is that there's an opportunity in it. Like I used to look at the journey as strictly healing the past mm -hmm. and it took the near death experience to really think about such a beautiful opportunity of the future that was directly learned from almost dying. And it had to be that black and white for me. And maybe that actually comes back to the first question. You know, this was life and death for me and it was black and white. And I had a lot more things to learn from in my life that were very hard and traumatic that weren't so black and white, maybe weren't so life or death, even if they felt that way. And I would have to imagine there are other people out there, maybe some of you listening to this, that it doesn't need to be that black and white for you to see the beautiful opportunity looking forward about living when you're looking back on what happened that made you feel like you were going to die. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's something I'm feeling called to kind of take a left turn. It's very much related to this. I haven't talked about this with anyone exactly, but might as well just go there here. Because I think it's related to something you didn't touch on as much when you were telling a story here, but I, I was thinking of you the whole time this was happening, actually, which was nice. It gave me a little strength in the moment. So as you know, recently I had this experience with my dog, Sophie, who's elderly and has heart disease and has a a condition called cough syncope where when she's exposed to wildfire smoke, which is happening a lot where we live, she coughs to the point of collapse and she starts like wailing in this horrible way and her tongue turns blue and it, it seems like she's dying and it's this horrible thing. And we were trying to get her out of town to get away from the smoke and inadvertently drove through this like hazardous toxic cloud of smoke thought the car would filter more a lot more of it out than it did it didn't actually do a very good job so she starts having an episode you know we're driving through it looks like the apocalypse in the middle of nowhere in nevada she starts passing out and wailing and is in distress and it was going to be at least another hour and a half before we were going to get out of the air so i i felt sure in that moment that she was going to die and anyone who knows me very well knows that I love that dog more than even makes sense. Like I would take a bullet for her. I love her so much. And I had this moment, like I was looking outside 
looked like the apocalypse. I'm really not exaggerating when I say that. It was awful. She was next to me, distressed. And it just, like, things started getting really dark for me internally. I had this feeling like, like, I want to give up. Like, I don't, I don't, this is so much that I don't even want to be conscious for this. Like, I, I, I don't, I want out of this experience. And obviously we made it through and she made it through and, you know, it took, took me some days to really process what had happened. Thankfully I had support, but it reminded me of, of what you talked about on your drive home by yourself, that there were these moments of, of not really knowing. I don't want to say exactly what your experience was, but something you had shared with me about that experience reminded me. And I don't want to equate what I went through with what you went through. That was way more intense, but would you be willing to speak to that experience that you had? Yes. And for the record, I am so glad Sophie remains okay. (laughs) She is the cutest, sweetest little dog and (laughs) has rounded out our troop multiple times (laughs) when we're together with her little sassy energy. But yeah, heartbreaking to know Sophie was going through that. Yeah. So I'm wowed by what you tied that back to with a part of my story in Bali that I, I've not shared with your audience yet. There was a moment, well, let, let me kind of kind of give a little bit of facts around this. That day alone, I discovered I was lost before the accident and didn't know it. So trying to depart the scene of the accident on my own after getting help Only then did I discover I was really lost. So my orienteering hadn't gone as well as I thought it would. And I had read the maps wrong. And that was really what prolonged my ability to get myself to help. I ran out of gas. I was kind of pleading with strangers along the way to kind of direct me to Duda, which is the little uh, village I was staying in. I guess you could call it a province named Salat. It was just the most desperate I've I've ever felt. And I was and so vulnerable, just nonstop epitome of vulnerability and and the thought of death just constantly one step behind me or ahead of me, maybe. And I started finding my way, at least as far as I knew. Everything looked the same at that point, and I was concussed and confused and disoriented and traumatized. And there was a moment on this ridge that I was hoping to God was the correct ridge. If this was the wrong ridge, I was in serious trouble because I was running out of endurance, like literal physical resources from having been lost for so long. And I felt what I experienced to be as a total loss of physical and capability and mental faculty. I was shaking so much I couldn't drive the motorcycle any longer. All of my bandages had long blown off. I'm just kind of looking at my bleeding arm and leg. I'm getting dizzy. I feel like I'm going to faint. I'm kind of nauseous to, to the verge of throwing up. And so, of course, I had to, to stop. I had this very physiological experience that I, I might not make it. 
like this really, I got this far, but there might not be a farther. That, that was a, a challenging moment unlike anything else I could possibly compare it to because it led to the thought that I might have to die fast or slow and I'm, that might be the last choice I have to make. If I have any autonomy and power left in this situation, the last resort is I get to choose how I die. And I have a motorcycle and a very, very high cliff available to me. And so that thought's now getting into my mind. And uh, what I think you so interestingly segued to is this very deep experience of being ready to give up wanting to check out, just accepting some kind of terminal fate and endpoint. And what ultimately happened is that like, as I was entertaining that thought of, of, is this really what I have left? Do I have choosing my own death left or is there more to it than that? Like, what do I do? Am I even capable of proceeding? I, I started having more and more adrenaline. Like I, I start, my body started responding. My body started waking back up again. And then all of a sudden lightning bolt, like, you know, and I don't know if it was physiological. I don't know if it was ethereal. I don't know if it was some kind of combination thereof, but it, it was as if I got struck by a lightning bolt of energy and suddenly I was the most capable person I'd ever been to physically <laughs> overcome anything that yeah. I would have to physically overcome. And I was able to not only get back on the bike, but I was flying mm -hmm. down this ridge, just obsessed and fixated on the idea there might be this little market at the bottom of the ridge, which that was my surety that I knew where I was. If there was a market at the bottom and I was obsessing over it, I was like yelling about it while I'm riding the motorcycle. I mean, I, there was no one around, like I was completely alone for this part of the whole day. I would have looked like a lunatic if had anybody had seen me because I was just <laughs> yelling things and like yelling about the market and like, <laughs> it like looked like I was on some like probably amphetamine or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I think your point, I think your point is really preserved in this, that I hit the lowest point I have possibly experienced in, in wanting to live and not being sure if I was going to be afforded that opportunity or not. Mm. Which, you know, I, I came out in 2012 that I had been suicidal at one point dealing with depression and anxiety in like from 2006 to 2008. And so it's a very weird juxtaposition for me from a from every angle you could possibly look at it you know, back in 2006 to 2008, struggling with suicidal thoughts, not wanting, not being sure if I wanted to live to 2018, going through a near death experience in a completely different place and frame of mind from then and not being sure if I could live. And I think, you know, for me personally, that juxtaposition probably gave me 
stuff to unpack that I will be exploring, you know, intentionally and with a smile on my face for years to come yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, not equating our experiences very, very different because it was not life or death for me in that scenario. But it was interesting because it was it was humbling. And I feel like there's still more for me to unpack there because I think we think we have this or I'll speak for myself. I had an idea of how I would show up in a crisis like that, like in a extreme situation where someone's life is on the line. I had a, an idea of how I would be and show up in that experience. And that is not how I showed up in that experience. I absolutely lost it. There was an interesting moment of kicking into gear where I was able to like execute and like give medicine and, you know, make sure that things were okay. But then after that, yeah, just total pool of, you know, tears and upset. But it was just really interesting to me because it just, it was this reminder that we just don't know how we're going to respond in a traumatic situation, no matter how much work we've done, no matter how much we think we know ourselves, there's, there are these little crevices of the mind that just don't, we just don't have access to until it starts to happen. And yeah, it was a a deeply humbling experience for me, but also interesting because like, I feel like going through that, having that moment of feeling like I literally cannot take this. I did, you know, I I did take it. I was able to take it and things turned out. Okay. I I don't know how it would have gone. Things had not turned out. Okay. But I would have survived that too. You know, um, I think sometimes these experiences of varying, you know, degrees of extremity, obviously yours on the far end can teach us a lot about where we are, where our growth edges are, and show us things that are very difficult to access in a normal sort of therapy session or something like that. Yeah, two thoughts came to mind with that. And, you know, the word compare is so tricky. And, you know, there could be a lot of people listening to this too, just digesting the conversation, making comparisons themselves. And I think compare comparing anything person to person is so, so tricky because trauma, difficulty, things that happen to us in life are just experiential. Yeah. You know, and they, yeah. And they register similarly on a physiological level, like at the most rudimentary basal level of our existence, things like what you went through and things like what I went to are registering no different from one another, right? When it involves mortality, be it ourselves or a little being that's our (laughs) sweetheart dog, you know? Like, (laughs) to me, there's something that's kind of all the same about it at a basal level, even though the more you get to the surface, the details do in fact change quite dramatically. And it it makes me think, well, what what is strength? You know, because I, I, I... I think now my idea of strength has changed quite a lot because, you know, like you, I thought I would respond much different to my own death. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like the spiritual circle I hang out in is very comfortable with death. It's all about, you know, death isn't the end, even if that means, you know, consciousness and energy, memory lives on, you know, whatever it truly is in the end. And then also, you know, the, the, and this is pulled 
quite a bit from Tibetan Buddhism that all of life, like this whole journey from birth is actually preparation for your final moment. And the final moment is like the ultimate transcendence, right? Well, I had all that stuff in my head. And yet when I almost died, I've like snot crying, ugly, like just I'm, I'm completely out of sorts. So any depiction I make of telling the story where I might seem like the heroic overcoming, it was fraught with just blood, snot, tears, doubling down, crying, panic, like, and that was all part of it too. You know, that's just part of taking one step and putting it in front of the other as cliche as that sounds, it's actually what survival is. And that's where I think the experience you shared with Sophie and what I went through have a lot in common is that it, it, however you're going to respond is included in survival. But what's most important is that you keep taking one step, however you may be responding differently than you thought you might or as predictably as you thought you might, it's that you are in the act of survival, whatever that contextually means. Yeah, I I second all of that. Just one cute little anecdote about my experience, just because you'll appreciate this and maybe other people will too. So, you know, we were driving through this toxic cloud and, you know, I'm pregnant. And so I thankfully had an N95 mask on to try to mitigate some of the issues like throats burning, eyes burning, the whole thing. I put my mask on, which I felt really guilty about, but Michael, my husband, who was like flooring it through Nevada, trying to get through the smoke, like left his mask off in solidarity with Sophie because he just couldn't bring himself to wear it since she couldn't put one on. And it was really sweet. That's so representative of why I love your husband. (laughs) (laughs) He's so sweet. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm curious now, like in your day-to-day life, sort of switching back, is this something you think about every day or is it something that you feel has just kind of informed who you are like in your cells and it's just incorporated into you to Dan as a human now? I think the answer is probably in between. The There was a moment with the guy that helped me. I wish I would have got his name. He's the guy in the white robe mm. and, and headscarf. Like, and it's so funny because like, he's kind of like an angel in real life. The dude was in all white head to toe. <laughs> like take that in for a second. Right. Yeah. And just this beautiful, beautiful soul. Well, as guilty as he appeared to feel having to leave me behind after helping me, I wanted to give him something like just out of gratitude and kind of that like exchange of energy and karma, which is clearly, you know, that's a big deal in a Hindu country and for my own journey as well. And so I'm like telling him to hold on for a second and I've kind of got my hand up like, wait, wait. And then I put my other hand in my pocket to give him whatever I could for helping me. And he was on to me immediately and was rejecting all of this, Mm. rejecting the whole thing. Well, I had been wearing a wooden mala, like a bead bracelet. During the accident, at some point, either I or the passenger in the vehicle that hit me, we'd taken it. It was in my pocket. 
And so I knew he was saying no to money, but I felt that wood beaded bracelet, that mala in my pocket. So I pulled that out instead. And I put that out in front of him. It was very, this was a very special mala to me. I'd gotten this mala after a really cool experience in the Lama temple in China, mm. this Lama theory in China a few years before that. But I wanted him to have it for helping save my life, if not literally saving my life. And so I put both my hands out and I offered him the mala in a physical gesture. And at first he said no. <laughs> and then he said, luck, <laughs> like, mm. is that like a lucky charm? It seemed to be what he's applying. So we both like giggled about it. And I said, yes, luck. This guy had spoken like nothing to me in English for the whatever mm. hour, hour and a half <laughs> we were together. And he said, want your luck. And we both like, it totally broke the tension <laughs> and like danger of the moment. We both wow. laughed. So he put this mall on his wrist, right? And he drove off. And then I was alone and the rest of the adventure began for me. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, like I gave away that sacred thing for me. Right. And it was my last one. I'd had these malas blessed. They were a big deal. And now they were all gone and I wasn't left with one. And, and so what? I had bigger fish to fry that day. Right. Well, I'm telling you this is I got home and shortly after maybe like two, three weeks after I had been home, I was looking for something in a storage bin in my apartment and there was one more. Mm that I didn't know I had of the exact identical mala. And that is the one I wear daily. And so there's this daily reminder, I think, of the preciousness of being here and that things kind of work out in the end more unexpectedly than we could ever imagine. And that's truly the thing I think about every single day when I put that mala on, on the days that I wear it, you know, which is most, most days. The rest is the perspective I get to keep, you know, th that's, that's mine and no one else's, you know, I get to have whatever perspective I want. And I think generally speaking, I don't think about that day every day, but I certainly appreciate kind of where I live in being less stressed out and less disrupted by just kind of the day-to-day -day happenings in my relationships and in my work. Mm, yeah. In the realm of practical, I mean, obviously finding a good therapist is helpful, but I'm just thinking of people maybe who have gone through an intense experience or maybe even a, a near-death experience that, that haven't done the processing work that you've done. So yes, clearly getting support. Were there any other resources like books or things that you read that allowed you to, to integrate what you experienced in any helpful way? Yeah, I'm I'm very biased on this one and you know this about me personally, but I've I've had a very wonderful relationship with Ramdas both in all of his work and together with him in person before he passed and there there's something about the the all-encompassing perspective like it's kind of independent of religious context but definitely threads pulled from every imaginable religious and spiritual context to kind of have a perspective on life and death was some of the most helpful for me. Mm. Also, I, I found it more valuable than I expected when I started struggling later on with some of the existential stuff. 
reading other people's stories of near-death experiences that, you know, there was something about like realizing on a deeper level how alone I wasn't. And and because there was like peculiarities about near-death experience, especially the out-of-body time-space thing that's super weird, that's hard to talk about, or it's in the sense that it's not very relatable and there's nothing comparable. Right. And reading about those stories that other people had that same incomprehensible, unrelatable experience was very good for me. So, you know, that comes with a word of caution, right? Like, I really sought that out, wanted it and and digested it. And it wasn't triggering for me to revisit other people's stories. And I recognize it could be a triggering experience for some. So, you know, proceed with grace and self-compassion if you go that route with your own things that you've experienced. But that's what comes to mind, you know, that was very helpful. And I, I think... You know, I had a, a very dear friend that goes all the way back to second or third grade tell me very bluntly, like, we're not very spiritually connected in any way whatsoever. She so was just catching up. And she very pointedly said, don't let this define your life. Hmm. And then, like, hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, it was so pointed and almost <laughs> seemed like it lacked compassion. And I've never forgotten it. Oh, that's funny. And so there's this certain amount of appreciating it and revisiting it. And then there's a certain amount of like, it, it's not now. It, it, it's a thing and it has lingering effects, but it's not here and, and it doesn't define me. Mm. So ultimately I was kind of like, oh, like that stung <laughs> or like, who do you think you are? And then ultimately she was right. And, <laughs> and I appreciated that too. Yeah. Something we haven't touched on just to acknowledge, you know, things have been really crazy in the world recently with, you know, historic flooding in New York and Hurricane Ida and fires in, in California and Delta variant, all these things. Something I've been enjoying asking people recently is, you know, given the chaos, what is something that keeps you hopeful? Hmm. What a beautiful question. I, I ask myself sometimes looking at the state of the world, what is it going to take for people to actually work together? And I feel like the spirit of your question is so important to like reconciling mine. Mm -hmm. And what gives me hope, surprisingly, kind of ties back to that day, not kind of, it actually like really intimately ties back to the day that, you know, we've spent this whole podcast on. I had a countless number of strangers help me that day across all language barriers, across all contexts. And I mean, the major, I'm, I'm like this white dude of privilege who's talking about going on a spiritual quest in Bali, right? <laughs> and the people that were helping me that day are living in third world conditions in some capacity. Not everybody that helped me, but a large number of the people that helped me that day may have had dirt floors right. just based on the area this was all happening in. And I think about the, the unconditional kindness and helpfulness that exists in a moment of need, albeit for one person, I have to believe there's some, some signal, some thing among all of this chaos in the world that will make people realize we can do that for each other mm -hmm. on a collective level. And so far, I refuse to believe 
that we can't transcend the intimacy of individual help and make it to the collective help. Mm -hmm. And that gives me hope. Yeah, I got like a wave of chills as you shared that. I, I feel the same way. I really do. It's it's easy to lose sight of sometimes when, especially online, you just see so much bickering. <laughs> but I, I do believe that in my core that we we do have that capacity. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I really choose to to hold on to that and feel hopeful about that. Yeah, I believe that there's something. There's some threshold right before us that we're going to cross. And whatever that point may be, no matter how dire it may be, we will help each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People like you give me hope too. <laughs> Back at you. <ya. laughs> You're the best. It's so nice. So to, are you. So nice to have you on and to talk about this. And if people are interested in the work that you're doing, where where's the best place to find you? Yeah. So this doesn't come up a lot in my work life. <laughs> sure. But I have this yeah. whole executive coaching thing for <laughs> consciousness and emotional intelligence and leadership. Yeah. So if that is at all appealing to people after hearing about my introspection, my website is insightpartners.com. It's spelled E-N-S-I-G-H-T partners.com. It's misspelled because it's short for executive insight. Nice. And then since we mentioned my photography, if you're wanting to see the, you know, photographic adventures in nature, I like to go on every once in a while. My Instagram is at DL Stover. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always and hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks for having me on and all the good deep questions. <laughs>